ever been blessed in spite of yourself? In the passage that we're going to look at this morning, we see a number of different themes. We see this idea of battles between kings whose names most of us can't pronounce, between uh, uh, Lot, Abraham's nephew, gets caught up in the middle of it. Um, We see this king priest of Salem coming and doing sort of a religious ceremony and blessing Abraham. And we look at all these things together and we say, well, what do all these things have to do with each other? I think that the most important thing for us to take away from this chapter is this. Lot moved away in the last chapter from being near Abram, the one that God had promised to bless. He gets caught up in this conflict between these Canaanite kings, but God's promise to bless those who were near Abraham acted on Lot's behalf even though he didn't deserve it. And so Abram goes, God gives him victory, and delivers him when he's been captured. But to understand better all these things that are going on, look at the beginning of chapter 14. And it came about in the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, and then these other kings that are listed here, that they made war with five other kings. All these came as allies to the valley of Sidim, that is the Salt Sea. So you're familiar somewhat, I'm sure, with the geography of Israel, the what would be now today called the Dead Sea. There's a valley near there. These kings had gathered in that valley, and they came to war against each other. Now, we have to ask ourselves, well, why were they coming to fight against each other? If you look at verse 4, 12 years they had served Keterlaomer, but the 13th year they rebelled. And then a year later, in the 14th year, Keterlaomer and the kings that were with him came and defeated them. Now, some of these names may seem somewhat familiar because we would have come across them as some of the descendants of Noah's children. Uh, For example, we see the Zuzim in Ham. We come down a little bit further. We have the Horites in Mount Seir. That will become uh, significant uh, later on with um, Jacob and Esau. Edom is going to be centered his kingdom on Mount Seir. And then we see Kadesh. We see the Amalekites and the Amorites in verse 7. And then we come to the ones that are most probably well known to us, the king of Sodom and the king of Gomorrah in chapter 8. There are these kings that come out. They are ready for battle in the valley of Sidim. Four kings, verse 9, against five. How did the battle go? Verse 10, the valley of Sidim was full of tar pits, and the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, and they fell into them. They lost the battle, very clearly. They died in these tar pits. But those who were survived fled to the hill country. Then they took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their food supply and departed. They also took Lot, Abram's nephew, and all his possessions and departed, for he was living in Sodom. So the four kings that had originally been in charge, the main one and his allies, came and defeated the kings who had rebelled. And as a result, the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah are now dead. The people have been captured, among whom are Lot's nephew, Lot, and his family. And it also says all of their possessions as well. Now we notice it says that he was living in Sodom. If you recall... 
verse 12 of chapter 13, Lot had settled in the cities of the valley and moved his tents as far as Sodom. Sometimes a, a significant point is made of the fact that he moved his tents near Sodom, and now he's living in Sodom. And then as we come to uh, chapter, uh, the end of chapter 18 into 19, now he's actually part of the leadership of Sodom. And there is a progression there. But the significance of the progression is less that Lot made bad choices in his life, and more that Lot is moving away from Abram, whom God has promised to bless. And he is moving closer to being allied with those that are opposed to Abram, and God has promised to punish those. And so that, I think, is the significance of Lot's series of choices. Should Abram have gone to rescue Lot? There is a sense in which perhaps we might look at the circumstance and say, you know what? Lot's had his chance. He's gone his own way. He deserves what's coming to him. And Abram could have said, you know what? This is kind of risky. I'm not, I'm not going to do it because Abraham is wealthy by this point. He is uh, seemingly blessed by God. He's secure. He's made allies with some of the people around him. So why would he risk losing it all and go rescue his wayward nephew? Did he make the right choice? Well, I think Melchizedek's blessing in verse 20 would indicate, yes, God has delivered your enemies into your hand. So, going back to the actual setting out, what takes place? A fugitive comes and tells Abram, the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre the Amorite, brother of Eshcol and brother of Aner, and those were allies with Abram. So there are three uh, Canaanite men, and their servants are going to ally themselves with Abram and his servants. Verse 14, he leads out his trained men, born in his house, 318, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. Uh, one interesting note that when he went in a pursuit as far as Dan, most likely um, Moses is recording this in light of the name that the city would have had once the Israelites had conquered the land of Israel. In other words, it most likely was not originally called Dan, but it's later called Dan for the tribe of Dan that settles there in that part of Israel. And he is recording these things for the benefit of the people of Israel who are, are entering into the promised land. And it's, it's being recorded in expectation of the promise that God has, is going to fulfill for them. Abram divides his force against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them as far as Hobo, which is north of Damascus. He brought back all the goods and his relative lot with his possessions and also the women and the people. Any other biblical stories come to mind where a group of 300 and some men has victory at night against their enemies? Yeah, Gideon against the Midianites. It is fascinating to me, the more that we go through these stories, how there seems to be in the Bible, like in any good story, foreshadowing of what God's going to do later. Not anything like a prophecy, like, I did this now, I'm going to do it again, but rather an anticipation that God gives victory at this point and can do it again. The same God who gives Abram and 318 men and however many men his allies had with them victory, 
against an alliance of four Canaanite kings. Think about that. If you were hearing that account and you're one of the people of Israel about to go into the promised land, should that have given you confidence? If Abram could defeat them with such a small army, can God give us victory going into the land? And yet, either the people had forgotten these accounts or chose to let their fear overwhelm them and ignore what had been said. Why is it important for us to remember what God has done in the past? Because the same God who worked then is the same God who works now. And while there is not a promise that God will work exactly the same way in every circumstance, the fact that he had the power to do so then ought to give us confidence that God's power is still strong yet today. We see this battle, this conflict. There doesn't seem to be any question of victory in the way that the story is recounted, right? It doesn't say, and then there was a struggle, and there was a back and forth, and it looked like Abram was going to be defeated. It just says, no, he pursued them, he defeated them, he went as far north as north of Damascus. And how uh, widespread, how complete was his victory? He brought back Lot, all the stuff, the women, and the people. So theoretically, he could have said, you know what, I've got Lot and his family, we're done, we'll come back. He brings back, seemingly, all the people of Sodom and Gomorrah, which is fascinating in light of what's going to happen a few chapters later when God judges them. When people look at God's judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah and they say, look how fickle and how harsh God is that he would punish these people, think about the fact that he had already spared their lives and they chose to continue in their wicked ways and not to repent and turn to God. They're brought to back to the city, and then the king of Sodom goes out to meet him. This raises a question for us. Who's the king of Sodom? Because wasn't he dead? And the most reasonable explanation would be that the people chose another king for themselves from among the survivors who had fled into the hill country. And so now this new king comes to meet Abraham. But then we see another king come to meet Abraham, and we're, we're trying to understand who this person is because we have very little detail about him. His name is Melchizedek. He's king of Salem. Salem will be later known as Jerusalem. It says he is a priest and a king. This is interesting because... Melchizedek is used as a parallel, as an anticipation, as a type of Christ in the New Testament. Now, what is a biblical type? This is something that's sometimes been misused. People have tried to draw analogies between things in the Old Testament and things in the New Testament that are pretty far-fetched. But when there is a New Testament passage that says this Old Testament character in some way anticipates the life and ministry and person of Christ, there is a good reason for saying there is that connection because the passage makes it very clear. In the same way that later on in the life of David, some of the things in the life of David are going to be seen as anticipating things in the life of Christ, David being persecuted by his enemies, Christ being opposed by his enemies, those sorts of things, Melchizedek here is seen as an anticipation of the person of Christ. Melchizedek is a priest and a king. 
Christ is also a priest and a king. Turn over to Hebrews chapter 7, if you would. We will come back to the passage, and we have to be careful not to add to the passage things that were later explained, because we want to understand how the passage would have read to the original audience. That being said, we have the benefit of having the entirety of the Bible before us, and so if we don't look at what the New Testament also has to say about this passage, I think that we will lack some important details. At the end of chapter 6, verse 19, the author of Hebrews says this, This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, that enters within the veil where Jesus entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of God Most High, who met Abraham as he was returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham apportioned a tenth part of all the spoils, was first of all, by the translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then also king of Salem, which is king of peace. Without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, he remains a priest perpetually. Now observe how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the choicest spoils. And those indeed of the sons of Levi who received the priest's office have commandment in the law to collect a tenth from the people, that is from their brethren, although these are descended from Abraham. But the one whose genealogy is not traced from them collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed the one who had the promises. But without any dispute, the lesser is blessed by the greater. In this case, mortal men receive tithes, but in that case, one receives them of whom it is witness that he lives on. And so to speak, through Abraham, even Levi, who received tithes, paid tithes, for he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. Now, if perfection was through the Levitical priesthood, for on the basis of it the people received the law, what further need was there for another priest to arise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be designated according to the order of Aaron? For when the priesthood is changed, of necessity there takes place a change of law also. For the one concerning whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe, from whom no one has officiated at the altar. For it is evident our Lord was descended from Judah, a tribe with reference to which Moses spoke nothing concerning priests. And this is clearer still. If another priest arises, according to the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become such not on the basis of a law of physical requirements, but according to the power of an indestructible life. For it is attested of him, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. That's a quote from the Psalms. For on the one hand, there is a setting aside of a former commandment because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. And on the other hand, there is a bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. And inasmuch as it was not without an oath, for they indeed became priests without an oath, but he with an oath through the one who said, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. So much the more, Jesus also has become the guarantee of a better covenant. The former priests, on the one hand, existed in greater numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing. But Jesus, on the other hand, because he continues forever, holds his priesthood permanently. Therefore, he is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him, 
since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it is fitting for us to have a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily, like those high priests, to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins, and then for the sins of the people, because this he did once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men as high priests who are weak, but the word of the oath which came after the law appoints a son made perfect forever. The book of Hebrews is very theologically rich, so there was not opportunity for us to go through all of the things that are being pointed on this chapter, but to highlight a few of the important points. A parallel is being made between the Melchizedek who meets Abraham and between Christ. What are the points of comparison? The greatness and superiority of Melchizedek to Abraham, because Abraham pays tithes to him, and the lesser gives tithes to the greater. Then there is the point of comparison that, at least in a sense, Melchizedek is described as being eternal. In this, in this way, it says, No father, mother, genealogy, without beginning of days, nor end of life, made like the Son of God, he remains a priest perpetually. There's two explanations for this. One is that Melchizedek was an appearance of Christ before he was born as a baby and came to earth. The other is that a parallel is being drawn between this human priest and the description is being set up in this way. The biblical account does not give any reference to his birth, his death, and in that sense, like Christ, he is, he is so to speak, frozen in time, existing forever in that state of eternality. And that's probably the sense in which the author of Hebrews is using it. Not that Melchizedek lived forever or had no parents, that he was born miraculously like Christ, but in the way that the biblical account describes him, he steps into the account, we meet him, and we know nothing else about him, and so in that way he parallels the life of Christ, who actually is eternal without, uh, without a beginning like the rest of us. Made like the Son of God, he remains a priest perpetually. The main argument the author of Hebrews is making in this chapter is that a priesthood according to Melchizedek is better than a priesthood according to Levi. Christ is a priest according to the order of Melchizedek in the sense that his priesthood is established forever, that it was accomplished by an oath, that it was not by birth but by God's choice, and that having assumed that office, he continues in it forever. And so in that sense, Christ's priesthood is better than the priesthood of the Old Testament because those priests would serve and die and serve and die and serve and die, and it just kept going on. Christ comes, is appointed a priest by God's design, continues forever, and yet serves today. And so we turn back to that passage, and it may clarify for us a couple of things, like at the end of verse 20, when it says, he gave him a tenth of all, who is the he and who is the him? The he is Abraham, gives him, Melchizedek, a tenth of all. Melchizedek brings out bread and wine. There is, perhaps in this, an anticipation of the Lord's table, although we don't want to make too strong of a connection because Scripture does not say that explicitly or clearly. 
but the parallels that he is a priest of God most high. This aspect of a blessing fits with what God has already said in Genesis 12. I will bless you and you will be a blessing. Verse 19, blessed be Abram of God most high, God who is the possessor of heaven and earth. Blessed be God most high who has delivered your enemies into your hand. God had made promises to Abraham and God was keeping those promises to Abraham and God was blessing wicked people despite themselves through Abraham. There's some dispute about whether Lot was actually a Christian. The character of his life certainly shows that he was, perhaps instead of Christian, I should say, was he a believer, a follower in God? Because obviously he couldn't be, have been a Christian in the Old Testament because he wouldn't have known about Christ. But was he a follower of God? Because in uh, some of the New Testament epistles, it describes him as being tormented in his righteous soul because of what he saw around him in the city of Sodom and Gomorrah. Was he a follower of God? At the very least, he knew what was right, and his conscience plagued him because he knew what was right and wrong, and he was choosing to ignore what he knew to be right. If he was, in fact, someone who genuinely belonged to God, he's not the one that we would pattern our lives after, because as we'll see as the, the story continues, his life ends in misery and shame. God blesses Lot, who is tentatively one who follows God. God blesses those who are clearly opposed to him because these are the same ones who a few chapters later are going to be wiped out by God's judgment because of their refusal to turn from their sinfulness. God uses Abraham to bless those who do not deserve it. And I would be cutting the story short if I didn't draw the parallel to what we know to be true in the New Testament. Do you receive blessings that you do not deserve? And I don't mean... Um, uh, house, clothes, car, job, family, things that we have that are temporal blessings, although those are good things and good gifts from God. I mean, spiritually speaking, have you received the benefit of the blessing of being connected with Christ because you have believed in him that you did not deserve because you were a sinner? God's blessing of the people who were wicked through Abraham, I believe, anticipates God's blessing of us who are wicked when we turn from that wickedness by God's grace and trust in Christ. And think about all the things that are described in passages like Ephesians 1, where it says that we are seated with Christ in the heavenly places. We have the down payment of the Holy Spirit as a promise of Christ's return and the fulfillment of all the other things that God has said he's going to do. Do you possess those blessings? If you do, remember that you do not deserve them. And the reason that you have them is because of God's kindness to you. Just like God was kind to Lot and the people of Sodom through the deliverance of Abraham. The end of this story, the king of Sodom said to Abram, give the people to me and take the goods for yourself. Abram's response is interesting. He was very willing a few chapters earlier in chapter 12 
to receive from Pharaoh a bride price for Sarai that brought riches to him, even though he shouldn't have done that because she was, in fact, his wife. But here, he seems to be growing in his faith and his trust in God. God has said, I will bless you. And Abraham is willing to say, you know what? Here's a golden opportunity for me to seize bounty from the spoils of war. But he refuses to do it. What does he take? He takes a tenth and gives it to Melchizedek as an offering, as a, a sign of obedience to God. He says, whatever the people who are with me have needed for their share of food... And whatever my allies want to take, let them take, but I will take no more than those things that have just been laid out because I don't want you to be able to say, I've made Abraham rich because God is the one who had promised to bless Abraham. And Abraham was, I think, beginning to realize that it was not going to be through his own efforts and his own schemes and his own skills that God was going to fulfill his promises. Did Abraham remember this lesson a few chapters later? Not necessarily. But at least at this point, he is acknowledging that God is the one who's going to bless him. Do we trust God to keep his promises? I'm not talking primarily about material goods. But when we pray something like what is in the Lord's Prayer, give us our daily bread, forgive us our sins, things like that, do we expect that God can hear, and God can answer, and God can do? Some of us have probably been in circumstances where we have, for the most part, not lacked and needed to depend on God for our daily bread. Some of us have been in circumstances where we have very much needed to depend on God for our daily bread. And whatever your experience do you believe that God has the power to answer prayer and fulfill his promises? Or do you immediately rely on your own ability to work things out for yourself? Think of what I believe it's King Lemuel says in Proverbs. He says, bless me with neither poverty nor riches. If I am poor, I'll be tempted to steal. If I am rich, I'll be tempted to think I don't need you, Lord. Whichever side of the line you tend to find yourself falling on, are you tempted to come up with your own solutions to the challenges and the needs of life? And so from a passage where we have wars of Canaanite kings and wayward nephews, an obscure king seemingly appearing out of nowhere to bless Abraham, what should we take away? God blesses people in spite of themselves. God blessed Lot. God blessed the people of Sodom. Knowing that they would be under his judgment not that far in the future. That ought to make us pause. Receiving God's blessing in the present moment is not a guarantee of always receiving God's blessing. 
God is not obligated to pour out his blessing, particularly on those who refuse to follow him. And so you may feel that life is going well. But if life is going well because God has granted you a temporary reprieve from judgment, that's like the eye of the hurricane being parked over your house and the, the rest of it's about to come past, right? Don't be secure in living a sinful life and thinking that God will forget it forever, even if he temporarily shows you kindness. The people of Sodom are not going to learn that lesson. Even Lot himself is going to go through great agony and seemingly not learn that lesson. God blesses people in spite of themselves. God's blessing is not a reason to think that God will always bless. And God's blessing is something that is tied to his faithfulness, not ultimately the strength of our faith. Why do I say that? Because Abraham's going to have up and down over the next however many chapters. What continues to be true? God is faithful. Even in times when Abraham's faith wavers, and that's not an excuse for Abraham's faith to waver, but even in times when Abraham's faith wavers, God is faithful. And so we can trust in him and believe his promises. And most importantly, by way of New Testament application of this passage, is Christ, the one who is after the order of Melchizedek, is he your high priest, or are you trying to make your own way to God? following a religious system like the Israelites did, even though it was said that Christ had fulfilled the law of Moses and they kept trying to live according to it? Is it following some kind of religious system? Is it trying to follow just sort of a general sense of being a good person? If any of those things are true in your life, you have not understood the significance of what Christ has done. You have not understood the span of what God is doing through Abraham, ultimately fulfilled in Christ, looking to all the events of the end times, you need to turn to Christ because there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. And if you have done that, are you going to God through Christ? You have that privilege. You have that opportunity. Do you take advantage of that privilege and that opportunity to go to God through Christ? The same God who blessed Abraham is the same God that we have access to through Christ. We who, for the most part, were those who were not the people of God, isolated from God, without God in the world, as Paul says in Ephesians, have been brought near through Christ. Do we recognize the wonder of that? Does that drive us closer to God? Are we living faithfully for God in light of the privileges and the blessings that he has given to us? Let's pray. Lord, sometimes we're like Lot and we're inching our way away from closeness to you. We think that we can make it on our own.
We think that maybe all the things that we've seen go wrong in other people's lives when they've turned away from you aren't going to happen to us because we've got it all figured out. Lord, if that's the case for anyone here this morning that is loving sin and tolerating it and thinking they can still be okay with you, Lord, help them to see from this passage that disaster can be just around the corner. Help the fact that you were kind to Lot and the people of Sodom be a glimpse of hope when we feel like we are sinful and without help because you were kind to them and certainly you can be kind to us as well. Help us to turn to you and and rejoice in that. If we are faithfully following you, Lord, help us to continue to do so, seeing that you are certain in your promises and consistent in your character and our faith is not misplaced. Lord, if we are uh, in a position where we have never yet turned to trust you, help us to see that you're the sort of God who can be trusted, that Jesus is the only way, that we need to be children of Abraham by faith, or else we are on the side of those who are your enemies. Lord, help us to see the seriousness of all these things, not to see in them a bunch of empty stories from long ago with distant names and places, but to see them as real and alive and still very much relevant for today, that we might see your goodness in blessing those who don't deserve it, that we would not presume on that blessing to continue, and that we would receive that blessing through Christ. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.